Greg, happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday, Greg. Thank you. Happy to be here. How old are you? 38. How do you how do you feel about that? Indifferent. Okay. There's nothing special about it. All right. Just a day. We think you're special, Greg. Thank you. Well, it was a lucky it's been a lucky week for you, right? It has. Why don't uh what's going well, on? So we all know Greg's been doing a trial. His trial's been going on for weeks here and there and everywhere. Uh, did you lose? I did not lose. Did not lose. We did uh, not lose. So yesterday, I think around 3 or 3.30, took a verdict? Yes, 3 o'clock, we had a verdict. Had a client that was charged with um, three felonies facing up to 25 years in prison. It was a sexual assault case. Um, and uh, let's, let's set it up. The allegation is, th- th- this is a really interesting case this is this is one we'll talk about for a long time this has also lasted years because this would happen during covid right correct yeah this this case spans two and a half years basically we've been waiting for this moment the moment that we can finally you know have some vindication and uh we got a verdict yesterday of not guilty Uh, let me let me i'll give the, the short version of the allegation is that a registered nurse at a hospital here in rochester sexually assaulted a patient in his sleep in his sleep uh that a uh a nurse with no uh and and i think it becomes noteworthy uh a male rn a male patient um and there's a civil lawsuit filed against the hospital there's a whole bunch of lawyers involved plaintiff's lawyer civil defense lawyer hospital lawyers and and we're defending the nurse who has maintained his innocence since day one day one so that didn't happen did not happen, and you get the case. And so, what did you do when you got the case? Yeah, so this was a tough case. Um, I think it was tough just to comprehend the facts. I mean, you, you kind of hit on we represented an individual with absolutely no blemishes on his record, not criminal, uh, and not in the workplace. He's actually been a nurse at this hospital. He's been recommended for awards. Basically, you know, in, in my opinion, the type of nurse that you would want to treat you if you were in the hospital. Um, very uh, caring, considerate, um, and has maintained his innocence since day one. So the case is, is challenging because it happened in a hospital. And I think to, to you, to me, to Bree, to everybody who's ever been in a hospital before, it's difficult to comprehend that this would even be possible. Most people don't sleep. Well, in the hospital, period, you know, with all the the noises and the people coming in and out. Um, But it also was alleged to have happened at the busiest time of day at a hospital, right in the morning. Um, You think about the hospital, what what goes on in the morning? Breakfast is passed out. Staff is coming around, cleaning the rooms, taking the garbage out, taking the linens out. Doctors Um, are rounding. Doctors are doing their rounds, their huddles. The nurses are there. It's like right around shift change. It's in a hospital room that's essentially open. Yes, there are doors, but the doors are glass. Yes, there are curtains, but they're curtains. Um, Anybody could walk in at any moment. So to comprehend that an individual uh, with his reputation at the hospital, his good reputation, would, would engage in this type of behavior is, is crazy. Which I also feel like it's noteworthy to to say that this patient wasn't on heavy pain medication. Correct. They 
they were able to understand what's going on. They weren't in, yeah, so, impaired in any way. Yeah, so, you know, as far as what we did on the case, we just began investigating it for ourselves. We did our own subpoena to obtain hospital records, and not just the medical records, like the actual internal documents for this case. Um, we did an investigation into the patient, um, what his life was like. Um, the hard part about the case is the law enforcement, they did obtain um, what's commonly known as a rape kit when somebody is sexually assaulted, and there was um, DNA that came back positive for our client's DNA that was taken uh, on a swab of this patient's um, genital area. So comprehending the facts, knowing that the DNA result was going to be admissible at trial, it was even harder to kind of figure out what happened, if anything, inside that room. We weren't there. The judge wasn't there. The prosecutor wasn't there. All we had was one person saying one thing, one person saying another, and there being DNA uh, on a part of this body that is consistent with what the guy said. So the prosecutor is going to say, who would make up this lie? Why would somebody who's at the hospital lie? That's that's the question in all the sexual assault cases. Right. Why would why would this guy, what's he have to benefit from um, this? Well, and then, lo and behold, okay, lo and behold, they do a swab and they recover DNA correct. off his penis. Yep. So, so at start, that's that's the facts we have on right. day one. Okay, yep. this could be a problem. Yep. Yeah, and wh- why would a person lie? Well, he hired a lawyer the next day, a civil lawyer, um, to file a lawsuit against uh, the hospital. So, obviously, you have that rationale uh, for why a person would lie. In most criminal cases, you don't have that. Um, It's very rare that there's a civil case going on at the same time. Um, So we then started digging into this person. You know, who is he? So it it really, though, it sets up as a lot of our cases do, especially sexual assault cases, credibility cases. Sure. You have one story over here, one story over here. They cannot both be true. Correct. Um, So you know, credibility being the main issue, um, we began our investigation into this person and who he is. Um, well, we, we found out that he does have a criminal past, and he doesn't just have a criminal past as far as convictions. He has a criminal conviction for lying. He has a criminal conviction uh, for what does that mean? a forgery-related offense. Gotcha. That means, in, in my terms, he's a convicted liar. He has pled guilty to a crime uh, in which he lied in exchange for money. Um, he had some other criminal convictions as well. Um, we also uncovered a number of inconsistencies with what he was saying in, in things that were inconsistent with what he said originally and inconsistent with what we knew about his personal life. So obviously when the allegations come out, he talks to the police that day, Ultimately, he ends up testifying before the grand jury and now before trial. And there were several portions of his testimony that were different at at every stage. How many lies? Did you count? I couldn't count. Okay. I, I really couldn't. Um, and uh, they just piled up on top of one another. In, in this person, in my opinion, you could not trust a word that they said. Um you could not take anything he said for its truth. Like some of these lies were things that make no sense to lie about. Correct. 
the the smallest of details that have no bearing on you got to give us some examples. The allegations. We're trying to know. I mean, I know some of them, but well, uh, so we <laughs> cross-examine him about the day, like what happened that day. Tell us about it. You went to the hospital. He was, you know, having certain medical well, conditions, which let him go to the hospital. So, I mean. There's no secret. When we get people that we expect to be witnesses, we do what everybody does. Put them in Google. Right. right? So you put them in Google. You, right. th- this is an important part right. of the case. So throughout the case, he referred to his wife as this woman. Um, and this woman, um, he called his wife over and over again to the police, to the grand jury, um, to the prosecutor, to his civil attorney, a civil suit was filed in her name. In his court filing, sworn to under penalty of perjury. Sworn uh, testimony that he was uh, married to this woman for 12 years. Well, a quick Google search would indicate that he was actually married to another woman. Um, and there was actually a, a news article about his marriage. They got married on Valentine's Day five years ago. City Hall. Um, they did a quick news story. And they are still married. Well, let me ask you, is it legal to be married then to more than one person in the state? It, it's not legal to be married to two people at the same time. Okay. So we have this case where he's referring to this one person as his wife over and over and over again. Uh, and then we find out that he's actually married to somebody else. So immediately we're, we're confused. Mm-hmm. Are, do we have it right? Right. Are there two individuals by the same name? Well, no, because there's and a news article. We see the picture. <laughs> yeah. We They were interviewed. Um, so we hired an investigator, and we went and talked to the woman he married on Valentine's Day. Um, Great day. And, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's actually a really sad situation because this woman had no idea about the other woman. Yeah. And we've also, uh, we got a chance to cross-examine the woman who he referred to as his wife in this case. And there were things that she didn't know about the other. Um, There were other just details in this case that you did not need to be deceitful about that he was. Um, So ultimately, you know, at trial, the prosecution called the first woman, the woman that he refers to as his wife during the pendency of the investigation, and we ended up calling the other wife, the other woman who had no idea about the first. Um, And I think that was the crux of the case, which led to the not guilty verdict. You cannot trust a single thing that this person says. Why would he lie? Well, it's simple. He filed a lawsuit the very next day or hired a civil lawyer the very next day. Um, His past was consistent with being deceitful, being dishonest. Um, well, I think also a lie that is just so small to tell would be like if you ask about a school schedule and he lies about that or the amount of children one has. Right. We, <laughs> we had that. verifiable lies that we cross examined. Why would you him lie about, about yeah, stuff like you know, that? Like that doesn't make sense. He told us that the day that he went to the hospital, his kids were in school, that he put his kids on the bus. Um, and there was no school that week. We had the school calendar. It was February break. So you think that would be something that someone may just simply say, you know what, maybe my recollection is wrong. It was two years ago. That's what I remember. Um, 
unfortunately for him, he refused to even admit the simplest of things. He fought on every single fact, even the unimportant facts. And I'm biased because Greg works here, and I have a lot of respect for the work he does, but Greg's this guy's worst nightmare because he does the work to say, okay, this is what he said. What can I show that that's not true? And, and there's not a... Not every lawyer is going to put two and two together. Okay, that's February break time. Let me get the school. Let me get the records from the school. Let me prove that that statement is a lie. Instead of arguing, hey, maybe it's a lie. Right. Greg, yeah. Greg did that to this guy over and over and over again. How, how long In, you have on the stand? Two days. Uh, I think his transcript was over 200 pages. But, yeah, that, that school calendar was something that popped in my mind probably at 10 o'clock at night, one night when I was getting ready for this. And I thought to myself, it's February. You know, I'm familiar with school breaks. Let me just look into this. Maybe he's not telling the truth. And lo and behold, we found the school calendar online uh, for his children's school. And, you know, we were able to prove that he was lying. We know going into this case that he lied. We knew that he lied about a lot. Um, we knew that we were going to be able to cross-examine him and challenge his credibility. Um I did not and I could not have imagined how much he lied in addition to the lies we even knew about. Yeah. We knew there were going to be inconsistencies, but they just they never stopped. And I think as somebody who appreciates good legal work, though, there's there's a lot of talented lawyers who can do a, a strong cross-examination and, and argue that that doesn't make sense. But, you know, a professional, the step two, and, and kudos to you, is can you get the documents that prove it beyond all doubt. And once you start proving a witness is lying beyond all doubt, that's a different thing. You can you can look the judge in the eye and say, not you believe he's lying. Right. We know he's right. lying. And once you have that, it's hard right. to get to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And there was some uh, technical work that we did in this case, too, with respect to the DNA, because that was an issue in the case that we had to deal with, right? The prosecution was going to put on evidence that our client's DNA was found on a portion of his body that was uh, uh, in a place that it shouldn't have. We had to deal with that. <clears throat> but the the technical work that we did, we hired an investigator. We spoke to uh, someone who uh, who's a DNA expert to, to think about this DNA, not in a vacuum, not just simply, oh, there's DNA, let's just close that door and move on. What does it actually mean? <clears throat> What does the DNA mean? What tests did they do and what tests didn't they do? Well, this was an, an allegation of oral sexual assault. There is a way for the lab to determine if the DNA was saliva, right, as opposed to some other uh, DNA from your body or touching DNA from your skin, uh, perspiration, and they didn't do it. They didn't do that test. Like a transfer of DNA. Right, and, and the thing about DNA, d the DNA analyst can tell us that there is DNA present. They cannot say how the DNA got there. They cannot say that it was from oral sex. They cannot say that it was physical touching. They cannot say that it was, um, you know, touch transfer DNA or not. Um, so, you know, our, our position, and I think is the, the position that the judge ultimately agreed with us, what value did you attribute to the DNA? If you can't tell us what type of DNA it is, and you can't tell us how it got there, what value does it have? Does it get the people to their burden of proof of proof beyond a reasonable doubt? The answer is no. How many how many cases have you handled that involve DNA in your career? <coughs> um, 
Probably 10 to 20. And DNA is a beast in and of itself, and uh, DNA cases are their own kind of cases. And, yeah, it's scary, right? Yeah, you you get a case, and you're like, they yeah. got DNA, and you're like, oh, oh this, this could be bad. This is what people expect to hear, right? If yeah. you're doing a jury trial, this was not a jury trial, but if you're doing a jury trial, um, this is the type of evidence that the people want to hear, right? Like they guilty because yeah, there's they, DNA. They want to see yeah. video. They want to hear about DNA. They want to hear about these highly scientific issues that they see on CSI and Law and & Order and all these different shows that they watch for entertainment, right? They don't want to make a decision in a criminal case just based upon what somebody says. Um, and, and that was the fear with DNA is would the trier of fact be able to evaluate it beyond what you would normally think about DNA? Oh, his DNA is there, so it must have happened. Wrong. That's that's not true. And, and I think the work that you do before the DNA expert, whether it's in your career, other DNA right. cases, or right. in this case, we worked with another DNA expert that said, this is what that expert should have done. Right. And we, we decided not to call that expert at trial because on cross-examination, the witness for the <clears> government <throat> agreed with our cross-examination, but we don't even ask the questions if we hadn't consulted with our own DNA Correct. expert. Yeah, we, we didn't even need to retain an expert. Um, this was never... Um, a case in which the the findings were going to be challenged. It was just simply having a conversation with an expert, understanding that this person may know more than you about this topic. He can help you. Call him. Have a conversation with him. Um, and, and honestly, the five to ten minute conversation that I had with this gentleman over the phone um, honestly led to the verdict. I think the the case stemmed on two different things: it was credibility, obviously. Um, but it was on our ability to attack the scientific evidence. So DNA can transfer easily, right? Sure. Like pretty easily, probably more than people think. Like sure. if I grab this cup and then you grab the cup, my DNA now could be on your hand. Correct. And, and even if we don't shake hands, I could have your DNA on my hands. Um, and understanding that and, and getting that testimony out there was, I think, important. I mean, transfer of DNA is a real police tactic. I don't know if you could, you could tell the people a little bit. How did the police get DNA without right. getting a buckle swab? Without getting a swab, they offer the defendant water, right, in the interview room. On video, there's a video camera. They offer the person water. The person drinks the water. They take the person out of the room. They come back with gloves in a plastic bag, and they put the bottle in. They swab the bottle, and lo and, and behold, they get the person's DNA. And That's what they do. Um, you know, transfer DNA, it, it happens. It's a law enforcement tool. Okay. So how long did this trial go for? All in all, it lasted six days, um, maybe seven, seven days. Um, it was long, right? So we talked about the, the victim testifying for, you know, two days. Um, which was important to us. The longer that he was up there, the better, because the more he said, the more inconsistencies we got out, the more uh, his story sounded contrived um, and unimaginable, I think was a word that was used during the trial. And it's right. I mean, it, it, was, it was a story that nobody would believe. And you get all the way, you, so they call <coughs> witnesses, any uh, I know there was some allegations of police misconduct or, or mistakes by the police. That was part yeah, of it. Yeah, er, early on in the case, there was um, some late 
discovery that was provided. It led to certain rulings by the court in reopening hearings, um, but ultimately the prosecution had at its disposal all of the evidence that they thought they had that they wanted to have. Um, so it was it was a full and fair case. Um, there wasn't uh, evidence that they thought they would have that got suppressed at the last minute that limited their ability to prove their case. They had all of the evidence that they had at the beginning of the case two and a half years ago. And what did so? They call witnesses. <clears throat> you call witnesses. Uh, and yeah, what, nor- what did you tell the? Normally the. Um, the defense doesn't have to call witnesses. It's it's not a requirement. Um, the people have the burden of proof, and say more often than not, the defense does not call any witnesses. In this case, um, we called uh, four witnesses for ourselves. Um, and these witnesses, they they ranged from a character witness to talk about his uh, good rapport uh, with his patients and his reputation for... You're talking about our client. Correct. Uh, our client's good... Um, reputation within the hospital community. We called the most important person in the case, the person who was closest to these two individuals that morning, uh, the person whom the um, complainant made the allegations to originally that morning. The prosecution didn't call that person. And this witness had facts that were more beneficial to our case than the prosecution, which is probably why they didn't call her, but we did. Um, like I said earlier, we called, um, did you call wife number one or two? I don't know if she was wife number one or number two, um, in order. Um, but yeah, we called the wife that we found that we found on the internet from our, our Google search. Um, and we called an officer who, who testified to the inconsistent statements that the, the complainant made that morning as compared to his testimony at trial. Um, so yeah, the, the prosecution puts on their case, we call our witnesses, and then we do closing arguments. So give us and, the canned version of your closing argument. Yeah, closing arguments is basically Re-enact, it's reenact it. <laughs> it was an hour and <laughs> it was an hour and ten minutes, so I I can't do that. But um, closing arguments are your opportunity to make arguments, right? It's not evidence. What we say in our closings is not evidence. It's our interpretations of what the evidence shows, and basically you are asking the judge to find your client not guilty, and here's why, right? Um, Here's what the evidence said, and here's how we should interpret this evidence. Um, So there's a quote that I found to summarize this trial um, pretty um, accurately, Um, and it's, no man has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. Hmm. And that was the epitome of this case. Details are important, right? The smallest of details, it leads you to believe whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Um, And this individual could not tell us what happened in a consistent fashion. Um, And that, that was the whole argument that we were making. We talked about all of the evidence. I, I went through the evidence, um, kind of by witness, ending with the DNA evidence and, you know, basically telling the court because the DA gets to do their summation second and I don't get a chance to get back up and kind of re-argue my points after what they say. So you try to anticipate what the prosecution is going to argue. So, you know, I was, I, I told the court in a minute, the prosecution is going to get up and they're going to ask you 
to find my client guilty because they have DNA evidence, right? Um, and here's why you can't do that. Here's why you shouldn't do that. Here's why this case is about more than that. And at the end of the day, after this trial, you have more questions about what transpired in that room than you do answers, right? You do this trial because you're trying to find out the truth, what happened. Truth and, and that truth must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And I was pretty confident that the, the court would have more questions than they would answers about what actually transpired. Um, and I think that's ultimately what it was. And the client was found not guilty and it was the right verdict. Um, it was the only verdict that was supported by the evidence. Um, and it was just a satisfying day. So if you, just to round it out, is so you have an individual who was charged with a felony, right? And has been dismissed. Yep. So, I mean, that doesn't happen every day. It's pretty significant. Yeah, it doesn't happen every day. I think it's, you know, most of our cases result in some sort of plea bargain where people agree to plead guilty to a lower offense. Mm -hmm. um, did not happen in this case. Again, client maintained his innocence from day one. Um, so the case is uh, results in a not guilty verdict. The case is closed. It's dismissed. Um, and, you know, it, it's hard to say that a person can just move on with their life after two and a half years. Um, and being accused of something like this. Correct. Where the, you know, the evidence doesn't support it. Yeah, you think about what happened to this person, right, over the last two and a half years. You know, you lose your job, right? Two and a half years, his good reputation uh, is tarnished. His job is taken away from him. He's accused of something that could result in him going to prison. He's accused of something that could result in a felony conviction and registration as a sex offender. Um, or the relationships with your family is, or, or anyone, you know, yeah, people could look at you differently. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's truly ever a, a full recovery mm -hmm. from an allegation like this. Um, but, you know, step one. Step one is getting the verdict that we wanted. Um, step two is figuring out the rest, right? Mm -hmm. Step one was the hard part, and um, just glad we could be a part of it. So with the civil end of this person's case, what what happens? That's for his civil learn lawyers to, I to mean, figure out. I mean, that's got to impact <clears throat> yeah, his case in some way. I mean, just from people ask us, People opinion. ask us all the time. They come in here and they say, this didn't happen. This is not true. Can I sue somebody? Mm -hmm. And the answer I always give is you have to win first. And then you can explore all your options. Right. Uh, and my experience has been two and a half years later of allegations against you. You go to court, you get a verdict, and you say, do you want to talk to another lawyer? And they say, no, I don't want to go back yeah. to court. I just want to move on. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the scenario is here, but that's been my experience in the past. Yeah. That's, I think that's after two and a half years, you want to be done with it. But at the same time, your entire life has been flipped upside down. Right. You've lost almost everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're lucky enough to have a supportive family that stays with you during these allegations, I think your road to recovery after this is a little bit easier, a little bit smoother. Um, so it, it's hard. As much as you want to be done with it, it's also, you know, you want to be made whole for your life being destroyed right. by a false allegation. Well, and I feel like, like you've had the last two years to get to know this individual and get to know the real person. And you can kind of gauge like whether they're a good person or not, 
a good person. I mean, anyone after two years. And so I feel like, you know, you got to know this person and it was really like, I need to fight for him. Right. Yeah. They, they tell you in law school not to take your cases personally, mm-hmm. right? Cause, cause then you, you can't have that kind of unbiased view of the evidence, right? If you take every case personal, um, then you may not be able to evaluate your case. Honestly, it's also very difficult to do when you meet with a person, you know, and how you many see times? Who they are and 20, what they're 30, 40, and... 50 times they're in your office. <laughs> yeah. They're talking to you. You learn about them. You learn about their family. You know what could happen to them if they are convicted. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard not to take a case uh, personally in, in that respect when you get to know somebody. Um, but it was just it was just a satisfying day. You know, finally getting like I said, that's that's step one for this person is 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 getting acquitted. It's probably the first time he was able to take a full breath in two years. Yeah, I, I imagine he slept a little bit and easier, you. and <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, All good right. job. Thank great, you. Great job, Greg. Thank you.